Welcome to the Pluribus Podcast. My name is founder of Pluribus, the crowdfunded insurance protocol that reduces the damage of getting canceled. We are here to talk about all things cancellation and ways to fight back against it in the network page. Most importantly, we want to provide you with the tools necessary to not only escape the constraints of cancel culture, but to provide a positive vision for yourself and your network moving forward. Hey everyone. Hello and welcome to the second Pluribus podcast. Today we are talking to uh, quite a polemic and famous Twitter personality, Rocco. Um, you may know him as Rocco.eth or just Rocco. Um, so welcome, Rocco. We're glad to have you here. <laughs> All right, guys. So what's on the schedule for tonight? We're talking about cancellations, right? Yes. So Pluribus is the cancellation insurance product. So uh, we're interested in talking to generally prioritizing people who have been canceled in some form or another. Um, So you've been suspended many times from Twitter, but you've also been canceled in other ways. Um, So what I actually want to start with is asking you, um, one of the reasons you're famous is you wrote an article um, in Less Wrong which is kind of a rationalist forum called Rocco's Basilisk about superhuman AI. And from what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, this article was actually caused a lot of distress to a lot of people on the forum. And then it actually got banned and then you got kicked out of the community? Well, that's that's not quite true. So it, it didn't get banned. I didn't get kicked out of the community, but it did cause people a lot of distress. And ironically, um, it was a perfect example of the Streisand effect where if everyone had basically ignored it, it just really would have gone away. Um, but people made a fuss about it and um, it's basically become immortalized it's sort of world famous now everyone's heard of it right people you know when i introduce myself as rocco people will say oh like the basilisk have you heard of that you know (laughs) that's how famous it is right so do you mind just giving us a brief summary of what the article is what is rocco's basilisk and then can you explain where you posted it and then why? I believe it was Eliza Yudkowsky who banned it. Can you just give us a brief history of what the article is about and why it got banned and why you got kicked off? Well, I mean, I I don't want to um, I I don't want to cause uh, distress for listeners. If people are interested on in hearing the details, they can go look it up themselves. But basically, it was a philosophical thought experiment that. Uh, the people at Less Wrong decided was too dangerous for people to hear about. And so Eliezer's sort of instinct with this was, we should ban this. We should, you know, uh, be very angry about it. Like, you know, tell me to remove it. Uh, Just freak out like crazy. Um, And, uh, you know, that, as it turned out, was exactly the wrong thing to do, right? Yes, we all know that banning things is the way to <laughs> right yeah it, it just it just attracted a huge amount of attention to it um and i mean like in, in reality you know people say it's a dangerous philosophical thought experiment i actually don't think it's that dangerous i mean it's like somewhat dangerous but you know driving a car is somewhat dangerous 
Uh, people do it all the time. Um, but the thing is, it is like there is a very small minority of people who start obsessing about it. It tends to be people who are sort of smart enough to understand it a little bit, but not smart enough to understand it a lot, um, which is why I don't want to go into it. So if people really, really, really want to uh, go into the details, I'm sure they can go on an internet hunt for it, and I will not be responsible for any uh, jumping through plate glass windows uh, that happens as a result of that, <laughs> which is one story I've I've heard about it. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting, right? Because I think you're essentially describing some of the key characteristics of cancellation, right? And this is in your first quote-unquote cancellation events. There are people who take some sort of, number one characteristic is there's some sort of writing or philosophy. And for whatever reason, people get very distressed over it instead of treating it like, hey, this is a piece of writing or it's a thought experiment or it's a piece of philosophy if I don't want to engage. Um, I don't have to. I don't have to let it consume me and, right. and make me distressed. And then the second part is kind of this archetype of a person who's somewhat smart, you know, a little bit, you know, to the right hand of the center of, of the IQ bell curve, um, but not smart enough to kind of grasp a lot of things. Um, but they feel very entitled because of their intelligence to lay down the law or lay down rules. Yeah, in a lot right, of way. right. You're talking about an information hazard, right? Yeah, I mean, I think all of us know, you know, sort of the types of people who like to seek out other people's writing, especially if it's like no-no and forbidden, and then they get obsessed with it or they get obsessed with the person and want to label them as, you know, whatever the ist is the zeitgeist of the day and want to eliminate them from social media. And so, yeah, <laughs> without asking, you've kind of described, you know, the type of, the type of event, right. That we want to help creators, people who actually do generative artistic and intellectual work. Um, we want to protect them against that. Right. So if pluribus had existed and I'm not sure if you got monetized or anything, you know, for your writing, but, the type of person we want to serve is someone like you who wrote something that is slightly spicy. Right. But like probably doesn't, you don't deserve to have your life appended because of it or deserve to get banned from something important. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess the basilisk is a little bit weird because, um, you know, there are very few ideas that are like it. That's why it's so famous where, you know, just the mere thought of it, maybe there's like a couple of ideas that people have come up with nowadays where the mere thought of it is considered dangerous. Mostly what people get banned for from uh, social media nowadays is um, not so much spreading hazardous information, but um, spreading information that sends a signal or acts as a coordination point for some uh, political group, uh, and that political group happens to not be in charge of the censorship apparatus. So, for example, you know, if you were in, uh, you know, Stalinist Russia, and there was social media, and you said something like, hey, maybe Stalinism isn't actually so great, and we shouldn't send people to the gulags, they would probably cancel you for that and send you to the gulag, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it's not that the very idea of not sending people to the gulags 
is is harmful to your mind, right? It's it's harmful <laughs> to the regime, right? It's perfectly fine to have in your mind the idea that maybe sending people to the gulags, maybe uh, murdering the gulags is not, um, you know, the greatest idea ever. Maybe communism isn't the solution to all of our problems. Um, those are perfectly fine as ideas, and you could debate them intellectually. The, the reason that you would have been cancelled in Stalinist Russia for having ideas like that was not because they were dangerous. It was not because they were false. They're pretty much true. Uh, it's because the regime who was in charge of the censorship apparatus was threatened by them. And the regime is often threatened by the truth. The truth is very dangerous. Um mm-hmm. So this this is kind of like what most censorship is. The weird thing about the battle is it's kind of not like this. Um, it's not really so much um, a political statement. It's not um, a coordination point for people to like get around some particular type of politics. It's it's a pretty interesting information hazard, I would say. So I mean, in, mm. in those terms, I guess it's a little bit unique. Um, right. So what you're saying is that in this case, it wasn't necessarily you know signaling you as some sort of you know fascist white supremacist uh whatever right uh it was just some it was kind of a different type of 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 occurrence than your bog standard sort of government issued regime issued censorship yes 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 Mm. yes right so then um let's talk about kind of more heavy regime censorship, which is um, you've been you were recently suspended from Twitter. This was after twice the Elon takeover. Okay, so that was I was going to ask that. Um, right, how many times? <laughs> right, I've been suspended. No, sorry, not suspended. Permanently banned from Twitter. I think either three or four times, but I've been permanently banned from Twitter twice after Elon took over. The first time I was permanently banned from Twitter was because there's a um, right-wing kind of online vigilante uh, account called Barkett Psychopath, um, which basically sent a mob of thousands of people to mass report me. Now, what did they mass report me for? Well, I said that people should not be forced to give birth to children with Down syndrome. Mm. And they were like, oh my God, this is eugenics. Well, I mean, it actually kind of kind of is eugenics. I mean, if you have a very broad uh, definition of eugenics, if you uh, allow somebody to abort a child because they have Down syndrome, I mean, that is a form of eugenics. It's not state-mandated eugenics. But it's still eugenics because you're trying to improve uh, the population in some way by controlling who gets born and who doesn't, right? Um, But, you know, I mean, it seems like a take that's not so... uh, I mean, it doesn't seem to me like you ought to be banned for merely saying that people should have the choice of whether or not they give birth to a child with Down syndrome. Right. I think this is uh, one of those things where... Again, going back to this type of person who tends to be a little bit more intellectual than others, but not too smart, but also very neurotic, uh, can't always tell the difference between what someone would say on an online forum versus presumably this is not something you might bring up 
organically, like at a dinner party. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would bring that up at a dinner party. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's controversial, right? People mm. like what you know, people at dinner party would be like, "Oh yeah, if you have a baby with Down syndrome, I'm going to get a gun and I'm going to like stand over you whilst you're pregnant and make sure you don't abort it and like shoot you if you you know try to have an abortion or shoot the doctor." No, I mean that's crazy, right? Like. If you really don't want to have a baby with Down syndrome, you abort it, right? Um, <laughs> this seems like a totally reasonable and legitimate point of view. Yeah. But, do you want to jump in? Go here? ahead. Yeah, sure. I was um, <clears throat> just reminding you of one question that I had uh, lined up. Raka, are you familiar with uh, Joffrey Miller's article from a couple of years ago, the neurodivergent case for free speech? Um, I mean, it rings a bell. I may or may not have read it, but what what's the brief summary? Okay, I think it was, and I apologize for my voice just getting over being sick, but uh, basically it was saying how people that fall on the spectrum in some way or another, or I think Jeffrey himself is, uh, is Asperger's. So he said these university speech codes are just not fair to people that fall in that sort of like autist nerd archetype because right. w- whether they... I mean, the way that he framed it uh, is like, you know, not being able to keep up or or notice these slight, ever-shifting social cues. I think wherever I fall in that, it's like not really having an inclination to follow them rather than not being aware of it. But I was just kind of, I just, just thinking about, you know, that type of conversation and how some people, the way that we were just framing it is, hey, this is just, we're just talking about an issue. This is, then is ought distinction. There's that. It's just like we're just talking versus yeah. people who are just like that is outrageously rude, and I have a problem with it, and I'm going to bring the hammer of Thor down down on you if I have the power to do so. You yeah. think that this is a pretty like inextricable issue, and like these two types of people are kind of always going to stumble over this point again and again. Which two types of people? The normie versus the neurodivergent, pretty much. Um, What exactly do you think the issue is? The issue is that it's somehow like sort of unfair to neurodivergent people because, uh, you know, neurodivergent people might not know exactly how to sense themselves, so they'll get like caught up by accident. Yeah, socially uncomfortable conversations that are nonetheless interesting to talk about that, uh, that the probably the majority of the population really frowns upon upon and will and will penalize people for discussing but on the other hand this other group of people would like to discuss it and also don't very much appreciate being told what they can and can't discuss i think there's an issue of how right to to clarify and add on to what he's saying there's kind of maybe uh, disbelief, maybe sometimes anger and a frustration, especially from uh, the autists, whether internet autists are real, where they are somewhat incapable of keeping up with, uh, you know, the Yul Roths of the world and what their agenda is for what is acceptable speech. Right. I mean, the thing is, though, there are two very different takes here that I want to separate out. Take number one is like, we shouldn't censor. And take number two is we should censor, but it's unfair to neurodivergent people who might not uh, be sort of mentally capable of censoring themselves properly. So we need to cut them some slack. 
um, but they should still be censoring themselves. So which ones, which one of those takes is it? Is it like censorship bad or censorship good, but we need allowances for people who can't do it properly? Well, what's your opinion? <laughs> um, I mean, I think the censorship bad take is a much stronger position than merely saying that some people might have trouble censoring themselves and we need to cut them some slack because, I mean, you know, what is the point of free speech, right? I mean, is it some kind of uh, form of entertainment for uh, a certain type of person, or is it something that's crucial to, you know, preventing our society from falling into tyranny where people get sent to death camps or, you know, children get sacrificed to Baal or something like that, right? Um, and I think, you know, probably the latter is far more important. It's not just a hobby. It's a very, you know, it's a very serious business, uh, that we don't allow our society to fall into sort of self-reinforcing delusions. Um, and we've fallen into quite a lot of those self-reinforcing delusions. I mean, we're, in my opinion, extremely deep in a lot of them. So do you tend to take the position that of a free speech absolutist in the sense that free speech absolutism is actually the cure for a society in the middle of psychosis and self-delusion or the alternate perspective is that you know free speech is important but it actually needs to be applied and deployed by sort of a wise and judicious whether it's a ruling elite or whatever else, somebody who knows and is in tune with the values of the society and can promote things, obviously not heavy handed, but like as an example, Elon, right, has kind of acting like a kingmaker right now on Twitter, right? I don't think he's a free speech absolutist, but someone might say that's okay because he is trying to do what's best for the platform or whatever else. Um, Kind of which side do you fall on that? More of the absolutist side, like, no, free speech is fundamental to stop delusion, or uh, maybe free speech kind of causes delusion sometimes because people get all wrapped up in words that they can deconstruct. And it would be better for someone to kind of be like, hey, no, I don't think that particular thing should be shared in the public square? Yeah, that's a good question. And unfortunately, I don't think either of those points of view are true. Maybe the amount of freeness of speech is the wrong uh, way to look at it. I think we should look at the sovereignty of speech rather than the degree mm. of speech. So mm. let me give you an example. Suppose, um, let's suppose hypothetically that there is an evil person in charge of society and they are let's say child abusers right so their utility function is to take everyone's children and abuse them in the most horrible ways possible um now obviously that's a bad thing right um but you know since they're powerful and they they're sort of like they have influence they're going to come up with a bunch of arguments as to why child abuse is a good thing right mm. and so they're going to then promote those arguments and from that point of view actually mm -hmm. free speech is hurting us because it's allowing them to spread their dangerous, toxic message, right? Mm -hmm. But then some people are naturally sort of going to pipe up and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, I don't want my children to be abused. I don't like this, right? And then those powerful people who are child abusers, well, they're going to, you know, come up with reasons as to why that refusal to have your children abused is in fact a form of hate speech and needs to be banned. 
Now, you know, this example that I've selected isn't a hundred percent real, you know, world, mm-hmm. but it's like not a million miles away from what's actually going on, right? Mm-hmm. You know, where child abuse is like subjecting children to forms of indoctrination during the formative periods of their lives that are um objectively harmful um and destructive to the development of a child into a normal human being uh backing those forms of indoctrination up with surgical procedures etc etc you know this is really going on right and what you have is you have both free speech and censorship both line up to produce this bad outcome you need the free speech to get the bad ideas out there but you also need the censorship to stop people from complaining about it and stop people more importantly from coordinating against it right so if i understand correctly you're saying free speech in a way is laundered i mean it's it's the people who promote bad arguments maybe or maybe they genuinely believe they're engaging in free speech but they're kind of doing it in a sort of shady underhanded way and then other people, or maybe the same people, then institute a sort of censorship that prevents the other side of this free speech from saying, yeah. oh, this is a bad idea. Right. I mean, when we say free speech, you know, we mean free as in sort of like, uh, you know, like the free group on a set or something like that, as in you mm-hmm. can literally say whatever you want, right? Um, and, you know... <sighs> It's. I, I think it's a mistake uh, to imbue free speech with a universal aura of goodness or a universal aura of badness. But at the same time, you know, if you say, well, let's take a middle ground and we'll have some like reasonable speech codes where some things are allowed and some things are banned, that's also a mistake because whoever whoever the bad guy is, if they're powerful, will take control of those speech codes and you will have a lack of free speech when you need it, and you will have free speech when it's bad, right? So people will be allowed to spread, you know, dangerous, harmful, bad messages that are actually bad for us all, but they won't be allowed to complain about them. So rather than freedom of speech, I think it's more important to think about sovereignty of speech, right? Yeah, that sounds that sounds really interesting. I want to I wanna say I think it's really hilarious how your example of free was uh, group theory. Um, yes, we are very much fans of abstract algebra here. Right. So great example. <laughs> right. But I mean, that's, that's what we mean by, we don't mean free as in beer. We mean free as in free group, right? <laughs> right. For, for all the mathematicians listening, you must love Raka right now. Yeah, no, I want to hear more about this idea of what do you consider to be sovereign speech and how... How should sovereign speech be the thing that is ultimately protected against cancellation? Well, so if you think about maximizing the sovereignty of speech, what that really means is if you're a listener, right, to people, you should get to choose who you listen to, right? Now, people will still mess this up. People will still listen to the wrong people. Um, mm. But in, in some sense you know, there, there will be consequences, right? If you choose to listen to somebody selling snake oil, you'll drink the snake oil and you'll die, right? And some other people will choose not to listen to the guy selling snake oil and they will, you know, listen to somebody better. And maybe the people who have a better message will find ways to bolster that message, right? 
Um, you know, maybe they'll even lose out a bit to the snake oil salesman in the short term, but in the long term, they'll build up a case, right? So the truth, and I'm old enough to have a little bit of experience with this, the truth tends to do badly out of the gate, right? But it tends to do very mm. well uh, after, you know, a couple of years or a decade has passed. And I've experienced this with the whole AI thing, you know, back in, you know, the late 2000s, uh, I was talking about, you know, friendly AI and super intelligence. And people telling me I was nuts, like, you, you're insane. And now it's like completely mainstream, right? Mm-hmm. So the truth does tend to win in the long term if the bad guys aren't allowed to censor it, if they aren't allowed to select what listeners listen to. So I think it is kind of important that people get to choose who filters their content. And that is something that is totally missing in basically all social media, right? Right. There is no social media where you're allowed to choose your own filters. Right. I think this is a little bit of of music to our ears. Um, I know for Tyler's because essentially the premise, one of the main premises of Pluribus, right, is that uh, supporters people who support a particular content creator, writer, thinker, whatever else, uh, should be able to choose who to support based on that alignment. Yeah. Um, and in particular, be willing to enter some sort of agreement that says, hey, I'm willing to give you a certain pledge up front that if you do something that gets you in hot water, I, a priori, uh, I'm committed to making sure that you as a, an artist, as a creator, uh, can be buffered against a somewhat inevitable cancellation event. Yeah. Um, this is actually very in line with one of the questions I wanted to ask around AI, which is um, you mentioned that um, sometimes people choose badly who to listen to or who to support, um, you know, whether that's based on a false image or their insecurity or wherever else. Um, One of my questions, um, which I'm sure you've thought a lot about, is how true is it actually that people are able to choose who they want to support? One future, I imagine, is some centralized uh, deep state, cathedral, whatever you want to call it, AI, becomes better and better at telling people, quote unquote, what they want, but it's actually directing them towards some sort of uh, paperclip optimizer algorithm, um, which doesn't actually account for their taste or their health or a good stewarding of their attention. Let me just be provocative and say, that's not the future, that's the present. That's Mm. already happening. Mm. Yeah, say more. (laughs) I mean, like, except it's not trying to maximize paperclips. It's trying to sort of maximize docility. Um, So a lot of the stuff that you see, like the rainbow flags, LGBT, um, you know, like the the kind of NPC meme, um, you know, not being a fascist, not pipe, you know, not having different opinions, not having not being a deplorable, all of this stuff. It's like, it's basically docility maximizing propaganda. And you have things like people, you know, telling people that they need to not have children and not eat meat because of climate change. When in in reality, 
climate change could be solved fairly easily with nuclear power plants, but we're shutting the nuclear power plants down because the docility maximizer is also telling people that nuclear power is dangerous. And we could also solve it with geoengineering, but the docility maximizer is telling people that geoengineering is dangerous. But it, it, what it is telling them is that they need to uh, you know, have fewer children, they, they need to own nothing and be happy. Like, you know, this may be a little bit paranoid, but it really does look like a system is sort of assembling itself to make people docile, infertile, um, or at least not reproduce, um, you know, mm -hmm. consume as little as possible and leave as much as possible for the elites to consume whilst they jet around uh, on their private jets going to Davos and stuff like that. Um, and it's, and, and, you know, then you have the aspect of, um, making, you know, homes very expensive. So people can't have a life, um, you know, like then there's the, the kind of San Francisco culture problem where it's like, oh, you know, if you want to do, if you want to lead a legitimate life, the state's going to harass the shit out of you. But if you just want to like take drugs on the street, you know, that's fine. And that's great. Like, you definitely get the impression that these, the cathedral is sort of a paperclip maximizer, but instead of trying to maximize paperclips, it's trying to max out control, like controllable, docile, pathetic humans who just, who would basically like the ultimate human for the machine is a pure rubber stamping device. Like this person doesn't have a home, doesn't have a family. All they do is they go and vote for the machine every four years and they don't consume anything. Like, that's the ideal person for this thing. That's what it's trying to optimize towards. So I remember on um, Alex Kashuta's podcast, you had talked about sort of these three optimizers that you say are eating away at pol culture, politics, um, whatever else via addiction. There's this attention optimizer, which is essentially yes. the infinite scroll news feed, addicted to getting likes. Um, there's the food optimizer, right, which manifests in in Doritos or, or you've mentioned you can be addicted to Nutella. Um, I also like Nutella. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I have a, right. That, that was quite funny. I think I overused that one. People are going to have this impression that I'm like a really for Nutella. But, uh, um, <laughs> no, I've, I've yeah. definitely, you know, there have been times where and it's, it tends to be when I'm like emotionally, you know, not doing a like sad, right. like eat spoons of Nutella. Exactly. Um, and then there's this entertainment optimizer, which um, essentially, I mean, you it, it takes a while to get there, but it essentially boils down to porn. Um, yeah. and what you're talking about here, right. Is in terms of, of culture is all of these optimizers somehow in tandem, whether it's emergent or whether it's organized or whether it's a demon, whatever you want to call it, end up selecting for, um, what you're saying is docile consumers who don't have any ambition or any, any connection with what we would call, you know, life. Yeah. And I guess, one thing I'm curious, and, and maybe you've thought about this already, um, <laughs> I guess maybe we are kind of going to basilisk territory here. Do you see an AI becoming strong enough to optimize for cancellations against people who would act against it? Yes, absolutely. Because in a way, um, many platforms right now, like YouTube and other things, a lot of suspensions are already automated. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, what happens when your electric company or your grocery store or your credit card 
actually, maybe that's already happened. Um, you know, I feel like there's a distinct possibility that there's an optimized AI canceller um, that cancels anyone who doesn't support it. Yeah, one, one thing I would say, though, is um, we've inherited, perhaps from the less wrong sphere, this idea of a sovereign AI um, that has a central computational decision-making unit that makes plans uh, and then just kind of like propagates that out. But that's not really what's happening. Uh, what's actually happening is the decisions are, the, the high-level decisions are mainly made by people. Uh, there isn't a single conspiracy that drives everything. There's just a lot of um, aligned interests and sort of mutual back-scratching that goes on up at the echelons of power, I expect. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't move in those circles, but, you know, my inference from what I can see from the outside is that it's more of a distributed thing of just sort of mutual backscratching. And, you know, the AI isn't in the middle. The AI is at the edges at the moment. And as you say, it's like automated bounds on Twitter, automated bounds on YouTube, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you, if you think about it, the, the real root of causation for getting cancelled for being anti-trans propaganda is quite interesting, right? So why does why do the people in power want more people to be trans or LGBT or any of these things? Well, it's because those mm. people are more politically loyal, right? Mm -hmm. um, because if you're like, you know, if you're a normal person with intact genitalia um, and prospects <laughs> in life, <laughs> then you can maybe like, you know, go and like have a family. Um, you can, you know, go and like be something, right? But if you've had the chop, uh, there's now something <laughs> wrong with you and most people are not going to like you, right? As in like, you know, they're not going to want to mate with you because, well, you can't, right? No, you know, that's not true <laughs> in all cases, but it's true on average. And if you actually look at these people, they tend to be ugly, weird, um, just gross generally. And, and, you know, why does the state want to produce more of that? Well, because once you have somebody like that, the only thing they have in their life is the politics that brought them into existence, right? They're now sort of biologically enslaved to it. So it wants to produce more of that, right? Because that's like a permanent vote for them, right? It's like, wow, we've, we've, cre we've, we've created a machine that can only vote Democrat, right? So there you go. I think it's uh, not a coincidence, too, that a lot of um, I won't use as colorful language as you, um, but these are the people who also tend to be the ones who do most of the canceling. It, it, it can be. It can be. But but, you know, like, I think the real path of causation is once the machine sort of realized that it wanted people like that, you know, there was a sort of, within the upper echelons, within the people who, who walked through the corridors of power, there was a sort of mutual agreement that that's the way it's going to go, that's the way the ideology is going to go. And then, you know, that directive was propagated down, and it's only then that the AI gets involved. And the AI is like, okay, we need to, um, we need to sort of, um, you know, censor anything that's against this because this thing is good we like this we want more of this um and that's how you get cancelled for speaking out against trans right so the, the the path of causation is quite a long one and the ai only happens at the end of it mm, yeah
you want to step in? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I was just thinking about how all the things that you covered, and there's so many things going bad simultaneously, all heading in the same negative direction, that a lot of times when people observe what's going on, they think that this is some unique situation that there's never been a society as messed up as ours or in other in other ways just like another just unique um uh case but it reminded me of the quote from uh toynbee saying that civilizations aren't killed they commit suicide it's really just the tech that we have ends up speed running the suicide the automated uh ai that cancels anybody that gets in the way is like a way it's like a program that tries to remove anybody that tries to hijack the train uh, that's yeah. headed towards oblivion and tries to get it to a different um, path. So I was just wondering, one reason civilizations collapse is due to prioritizing comfort uh, over anything else, and many truths are inherently uncomfortable. One, was a civilization as successful as ours destined to become completely detached from reality? And to how might we get people to choose painful truths over comfortable fantasies because that's the only way to avoid the fate that seems to have been carved out for us. Yeah, I mean, there are two points there. So one of them is like, is this fundamentally to do with technology or not? Is it something that would have happened anyway? Um, and I actually think technology is causative here. Um, mm. So... If you imagine the kind of ideas that we're seeing, you know, the the gender bender nonsense, imagine that, but in like the year, you know, 1170 or something, <laughs> and you have, you know, a country somewhere in Europe that's decided to like sterilize their men and sort of like turn them into fake women and then sterilize some of their women and turn them into fake men, uh, it would just get conquered, Right. Um, because, mm -hmm. um, you know, because like actually real human genders are functional in the sense that women produce the next generation, men are soldiers or workers. Um, and when you mess with that, you make them less functional. So if technology wasn't there to kind of like mask the dysfunction, this would very quickly get, um, obliterated. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that that is the way in the past in which this kind of thing didn't happen. Um, so now in the present, um, you know, thankfully we don't have um, anywhere near as much physical violence, uh, which is a good thing, but it has this unfortunate consequence that, I mean, like when you get rid of physical violence, you don't get rid of power, right? The, the power just goes somewhere else. Okay. Um, so where has power gone? If you can't have, you know, a bunch of men in shining armor with swords killing each other on a battlefield. Well, it's sort of gone to, like, a war over truth and lies, right? Um, it's like whoever can impose their lies on society wins. Um, and it turns out that, you know, like, the optimal human for like producing the next generation of soldiers or being the current generation of soldiers is not the same as the optimal human for like imposing their lies on everybody else. Right. And that's why we see humanity sort of evolving away from what we think of as quote unquote, normal functional humans into like something weird and, you know, out there 
it's because like it's hard to be it's hard to be a loyalist it's just it's just it's just not optimal in terms of power maximization to be the same kind of human as you were in the year 1170 right like right you know women sort of like for the most of history have been involved with raising children but that's no longer important because we have immigration instead so you know women who spend their time like raising children are sort of not optimal power maximizers right Mm -hmm. it's much more optimal to spend your time uh you know being a professor and uh writing you know lies which then later on will be used to censor billions of people uh it's it's more if you have more leverage over the future um by you know writing like feminist papers than by birthing children and and that's you know that's why things have gotten weird right and then again in terms of men it is not optimal as a man to be a warrior uh you know like soldiers are like really fucking lower class now right it's like the worst one of the worst careers you can have um it's it's far more optimal to you know be an entrepreneur or um you know i don't know do a crypto startup or um, you know, be in middle management, you know, whatever, some other thing, right? So, like, um, p- power didn't dis- power didn't disappear. It, it just went somewhere else. So it's funny because I actually gave a presentation to a couple of my friends the other day. So um, I don't know how much you know about um, sort of caste system within Hinduism, but um, so there's like the priestly class, which are the Brahmins, and there's yeah. the warriors who are also the administrators. They're called Kshatriyas. And then there's the kind of merchants and farmers. They're called Vaishyas. And then there are the day laborers that are called Shudras. And uh, then the there's like outcasts. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I actually gave a presentation because actually um, the word Kshatriya means warrior, but it also means administrator. And so, I mean, you see this throughout history. Usually the people who are in charge of the kingdoms and in charge of the bureaucracy are people who can actually fight and use violence and deploy it properly. Um, but nowadays we see kind of an overrepresentation of Brahmins. So either the idea people like the priests and the teachers or essentially the mercenaries, the market people, the people who are merchants, um, who end up running a lot of the governance and other sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and so the status of a Kshatriya, this is like the second highest caste, has been reduced to almost nothing. <laughs> um, because like you say, yeah. I mean, in, in in terms of cathedral, like warriors aren't docile, right? They're not going to fall for a, a docility maximizing program. Um, whereas somebody who's more of a Bremen type who just sits and writes a bunch of, you know, big brain stuff yeah but I mean, it's it's not even really the the kind of big brain people who are in charge it's kind of like um because you see that makes it sound like it's really sort of like intelligence um that's sort of power maximizing but it's not right mm. uh, the most intelligent people are beaten by people who are less intelligent but sort of more um more able to to wield um, lies that generate the right kind of loyalty, right? So, mm. you know, you ha- a good example is like Richard Dawkins uh, versus uh, Elevator Gate Girl, right? Do, do you know about that one? <laughs> no. <laughs> so there was there was this big deal, and this was a really big tipping point in the, in the culture wars, where there was 
you know, Richard Dawkins, Dan Dennett, um, Chris Hitchens, and Sam Harris, the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, had sort of like vanquished the last vestiges of Christian sort of influence in the institutions, and they were then having these atheist conferences. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an incident called Elevator Gate where some woman, I can't remember her name. Ah, I think I recall this. Said that like a, a, a male of her age, and I think they were in their 20s or, or very late teens, like 19, I don't know exactly, but that kind of age, uh, approached her in an elevator at night and said, hey, I like you. Would you like to come back to my room and have a coffee? Uh, and she said no, and he was like, oh, okay, and that was the end of it. But then, like, she made a huge deal out of it, and I think she, I don't know whether she doxed him, I can't remember, but basically it was, like, a huge deal. And Richard Dawkins was um, was against it. He was like, look, this is crazy. All he did was ask you to to basically, you know, Netflix and chill. I mean, he, he wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to force you. He, he wasn't even being rude or, or, or pretentious or anything. He was literally just saying, Hey, do you want to come hang? Right. You know, and it's your, it's your option to say yes or no. But the, the elevator gate girl was like making a huge deal out of it. Like she felt threatened. She didn't feel safe anymore. Like she was obviously mm-hmm. layering it on with a trowel. Right. How much of that do you think is that people have unconsciously uh, learned that being histrionic is a way to gain sort of power in this cathedral docility maximizing, hey, if I can learn to behave in a way that I'm so freaked out, I'm so victimized, I'm so neurotic, I can get something by trying to, you know, yeah. in, 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 in the worst case, basically, I mean, cancel, but like ruin their reputation, maybe ruin their life. Like, right. A, a lot of this seems like, like you were saying, it's, it's not necessarily a conscious, intelligent, intellectual thing. It's, it's an unconscious strategy that has been, uh, owned and, and developed and, and people recognize that it wins them some sort of game. Um, yeah. now the end of the game is pretty terrible. <laughs> right. But but the, the the point I'm trying to make there is that you know during Elevator Gate, right out of out of the the Elevator Woman and Richard Dawkins, which one of them is the big brain? It's not her. It's Richard Dawkins, right? Um, you know Ooh. he's clearly more intelligent. He's world famous. He he basically invented uh, our modern understanding of uh, natural selection, right? But he lost, right? He was banned from their conferences because Ooh. he uh, came out against uh, the feminist atheists, right? Um, so it's not like the, the, you know, the Brahmins are winning, like the big brains are winning. Well, I don't know exactly what Brahmin means, but like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like the most intelligent ones are winning. Right. So there's a very specific thing going on here, which is, you know, you create a debate like this. Um, one side in that debate has an advantage, right. In terms of the, uh, should we say the game theory of lies, Right. So, you know, if I come out and say, oh, I'm in favor of the woman, uh, she's vulnerable and needs protecting, um, you know, like, I'm, that's good for me, because I'm like signaling, I'm doing the white knighting thing, I'm signaling how protective I am, right? And that's good, mm-hmm. that's beneficial to me. So in effect, basically, she's sort of paying everyone to be on her side by mm. giving them this little implicit gold star of being the protector. But then mm. if you go on the side of, of the, the men here, which is Richard Dawkins and the guy in the elevator, you don't get that gold star. You're like, oh my God, are you like in favor of rape or something? Ugh, yuck. 
you know so like this is not a fair debate right um this is one where one side has picked an extremely strong position where it's almost like everyone in the entire world is te- is getting a big bribe to be on her side and support her lie right so since you mentioned that you feel like technology is causative of a lot of this insanity and degeneration do you feel like a lot of this is because someone like this uh woman in elevator gate is able to leverage technology to get her voice out to a million people and cause a whole drama because i imagine this can't happen without large-scale social media technology um i mean you know maybe to some extent but you know there's always People will always have ways of getting a message out, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I think the more important point is that this, that side in that debate, the feminist side, the kind of, I think that's sort of um, third wave feminism, right? The third wave feminism side in that debate has a structural advantage, which is that people are always going to want to appear to be fighting for the underdog. And in a debate between a man and a woman, the woman is always the underdog, especially if it's something sexual, right? It mm. doesn't matter who's right. Mm-hmm. Like, it matters who's the woman, right? And so she's going to win <laughs> every time. Um, so, like, societies before ours had ways of well the ones that that succeeded had ways of preventing that from happening you know like discrimination against women whatever you want to call it right they you know like women were considered inferior to men in various ways they were suppressed in various ways i suspect the reason for that was because like the ones that didn't do that would have ended up with a disaster and they would have been conquered and everyone would have been killed right so they sort of evolved like ways to control this sort of extreme unfair advantage that women have in that kind of debate. And there's this, there's this clause in the Magna Carta, actually. Um, I can't remember exactly what it is, but what some guy on Twitter quoted it. Uh, I quoted it to him and, and he adopted it as his, uh, as his bio on Twitter. And it's something like, you know, the, uh, the testimony of a woman shall never be accepted in court for any murder except that of her husband or something like mm. that. It's basically like women are not, evidence from a woman is not allowed, right? And, and that's kind of like the cure for this. It's like, oh, women have this massive advantage. They're always going to be able to bribe people to be on their side and support their lie. So we're going to write it into the law that they're just, their testimony is just not allowed. It's just disallowed, right? Um, and then, you know, maybe some societies went against that. And uh, then they had like, chaos um because people could just basically pull these lies out and do all sorts of random shit with it um and it it broke something right yeah i wonder i wonder to the degree i mean um you're you're mentioning this in the context of this particular woman um in terms of elevator gate but i mean you're starting kind of actually to sound a little bit girardian where you're talking about how especially nowadays the victim um, in the situation has an enormous amount of leverage and whether yes. that's for religious reasons because of Christianity, although early Christianity, although it had concern for victims, it didn't yeah. place victims above everybody else. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's cultural. I think it's just game theory, right? Because like, if we have a, if we have some kind of situation where you have to choose which of two sides to support and you can either support the weak side or the strong side, like, it's always going to be better mm. for you to claim that you're supporting the weak side because that is a sign of strength on your part, right? Mm. So in any kind of 
judicial process, you know, the, you know, the, the side that people associate with weakness and vulnerability has an advantage. And it especially has an advantage if it's women, because women can always be like, oh, you know, if you support me, I'll sleep with you kind of implicitly. And I know that sounds <laughs> sort of stupid, but that's where, that's where the whole white knighting thing comes from, right? There's always that implicit promise that maybe, just maybe she'll sleep with you if you support her. How permanent is that though, of just always standing up for the weak side it makes you look better and it's a high status thing to do? I mean, I understand that's the reason. I understand why the elevator thing went down like it did and the whole concept of white knighting and why people do it because it makes them look good. Yeah. But as this trajectory becomes more and more obvious, I feel like it should become like more and more people that take the side of um of the side that has the advantage right now. It should be recognized as a short-sighted, foolish, stupid, selfish decision that imposes long-term or even short-term costs on the civilization yes. by just signaling. I mean, I understand why some people do it, but th- that should become more and more obvious over time. And instead of being a high-status thing, it should be a shameful thing yeah, eventually, right. which it is in some circles, but it should yeah, be broadened. But, but the problem is there are pub like, you're now talking about public goods. Let me give you an example, right? So suppose there's a communal house, right? Um, and uh, there's a bunch of people in it. And then one day, um, a homeless person comes along and asks to stay in the house, right? Um, and it's maybe the first time this has ever happened. So people say, well, we feel kind of sorry for the homeless person. We'll let them in, right? And they, they stay for a while, but they steal stuff and they start a fire and it's a total disaster. And, you know, you have to call the police and get them kicked out. Okay. And then the next time a homeless person comes in, there's now sort of like common knowledge within the group that, you know, it's in everyone's interest to not let the homeless person in because, you know, you've had experience, you know, it's bad. Um, just get rid of them, like fob them off somehow. Right. But then if, so if you had a secret vote where all 10 members of the house had to vote secretly on whether to let the homeless person in, you probably have like, you know, unanimous, like nine out of 10 calling for, for them to be, to be sort of shooed off. Right. But if you have a public vote, it's it's different now because it you know if you publicly say oh i want to tell this homeless person to fuck off into the cold winter night so they might die you're doing two things number one you are you know trying to bring about an outcome that's better for yourself but number two you're also signaling something about the kind of person you are you're signaling that you're a selfish person right so it would be good for the group if everyone could sort of be selfish because like the group has a common interest in not having the house burnt down, not having their stuff stolen, not having shit all over the floor, whatever it is the homeless person is going to do. Right. Um, but each individual person wants to be the nice guy. So what each individual would prefer is for, in a, in a public vote is for them to be the one person who votes in favor of it. Right. Because then, you know, they'll, they'll get the best of both worlds. They will get to virtue signal and they're such a kind person that even though there's a risk of all these bad things happening, they still voted in favor of it. Um, but then because everyone has those incentives, they actually all vote to let the homeless person in and then the house gets burnt down again, people's stuff gets stolen, it's a disaster, right? And, th- and it's even worse because if you think about this, it, it, imagine that there is one of these votes, right? And um, let's say this time we do manage to vote against the homeless person coming in, right? And there are two people, um, and let's say they're both women, 
and you're choosing which one of them to marry. And one of them voted to let the homeless person in and one of them voted not to. You might, even though the right outcome was kicking the homeless person out, you might choose to marry the one who voted to let them in because she's just signaled that she's very good at caring. So that means she mm. might be very good at caring for your children, right? Mm. So all of the incentives are messed up, right? You have these public goods where you need to make a decision that's good for everyone, but being in favor of that decision signals bad things about you. This is uh, becoming very advanced game theory. I can see but how... Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds advanced, but this is really what's happening again and again and again and right. again. Um, nobody wants to be a transphobe, but everyone would prefer if their children didn't get mutilated, right? Right. It's hard to set limits in public, especially because you will probably incur the wrath on your own um, in a lot it's, of it's ways. Not, it's not even necessarily about wrath. It's literally there's just brownie points for being soft, right? Because <laughs> you're demonstrating to other people that you're kind, right? And that's good for you because it means that other people will want to associate you, want to with you, want to trust you, want to form relationships with you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you are creating a negative externality for the group by being too kind and letting in the tramp, you know, right. whatever it is you're doing. That's I feel like this is another example of Again, we talked a little bit about how free speech can be laundered or misused in certain ways. We're talking about freedom of association here, where that doesn't mean, hey, anyone's welcome. It means, hey, we can freely associate and decide on rules together in a way that benefit us. But again, you run into this problem of how people want to signal in public. Yes. Um, I. This actually leads into a really good question, which is... Um, you wrote a thread recently on, you wrote it a lot about war and how, you know, civilization is generating because of narrative control and the docility optimizer. One thing that you mentioned is that one thing that might be able to fight against the sort of uh, deep state centralized cathedral AI is a sense of decentralized network state um, type of AI um, multipolar AI, I think, is the term that you used. Um, I know um, we talk a lot about this at Pluribus because we essentially want to give creators and supporters a very local relationship. Like, you don't even have, to, you know, if you can be insured by people who support you, you can give them private things. Um, you know, you can be part of your own network union where if you want to post things publicly, that's great. But if not, you can do things privately, which again ends up preserving some of these public goods that you're talking about when you can do things in private, when you don't have to signal to a larger public. Um, to what degree do you actually think um, some sort of decentralized or multipolar AI um, is being developed by various tribes to counter a more insidious, um, centralized, deep state one? And um, how do you think Pluribus? can be leveraged as um, a product for that purpose, right? Do you think there's a, there's a way for, to attract like people who are developers to do a project in a way and get support um, to make sure that they don't get canceled by the centralized AI canceller? How, how do you imagine, um, how do you imagine this playing out and, and what do you think Pluribus can do to kind of accelerate this, this multipolar AI that benefits particular groups of people who freely associate rather than this docility maximizer degeneration um, machine? Well, 
why do we want to bring AI into it? Because everything that I've said so far, you don't need AI for any of this. This is all just human beings and computer networks, right? There's no need for AI. Now you can have mm. AI as a um so basically the kind of AIs that people have at the moment, like chat GP, uh, GPT chat, um, they are just very good at repeating um simple uh known tasks right or or like regurgitating well-known knowledge that's already written down somewhere so these are not ais that are going to be like a yudkoskian singularity or a bostromian singleton where you know it's just gonna like wake up and like uh build nanobots and take over the whole universe it's more like just a sort of um you know just just imagine like having sort of access to infinite uh call center worker type intelligence right where the you know they can just look at something and classify it uh according to what you would get if you just looked it up on google right um so i i guess that kind of ai can can be used to um make various censorship tasks more uh cheap basically because you don't have to employ a person to do it um but i don't think it really changes the game right um you know, ev- everything that we would talk about with the current uh, state-of-the-art AI can also be done without it. It's just, just going to cost you more in terms of paying people to um, classify things and generate text. That may change in the next, say, 20 years, but mm. s- stick with that for now. So, I mean, in terms of decentralization, you know, um, like... I mean, I, I was thinking about this myself in terms of like, what am I going to do with my Twitter account? Because realistically, you know, either I'm never going to use Twitter again, or I'm going to get banned again. I and mean, it's one of the two, right? <laughs> I either have to not, I either have to not tweet ever, or I'm going to get banned again. Uh, so what do I do, right? How do I solve this? Well, I mean, you know, I did a poll with some of my followers and said, look, where else would you follow me? Uh, if I got banned from Twitter again, and you know, most people were saying kind of like we wouldn't. Twitter is really convenient, um, so it means that, that whoever has censorship power over Twitter basically has ownership over my social graph, uh, which is you know a huge problem. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what what can you what can you do about that? Well, here's here's a sketch of a solution that I think might work for that, right? So, so and some of the people over at um, um what's it called oh god i'm i'm getting I'm, I'm getting old now i've forgotten it um the the curtis yarvin thing um unqualified reservations right some of the people over at urbit are they're developing a solution to this right so um basically well Maybe this isn't quite what they're developing, but basically, like, if you have a Twitter account and you have a Facebook account, Instagram, Gab, uh, Truth Social, uh, Mastodon, you have a bunch of these accounts, right? You know, imagine if you just had a single app on your phone where you could post something and it would then automatically go and post to all of these, right? Um, and then people would comment, people would reply you could get into conversations and you could just reply from a single interface to any one of these. Um, and then, you know, sort of further, furthermore, you, you could kind of incentivize this thing with like a crypto token or something like that. Um, you could basically have a, a universal social media interface where all the different social media networks just became sort of like uh, subsets of it or groups. And, 
you know, if they then, you know, if, if you made this thing and if it was very popular, if you got a lot of users and if you made it really useful to people, which I think you could, because modern social media is actually really bad. And the, the reason it's, by the way, the reason it's really bad is because these things have incredibly strong moats because of the, because of the network effect. So, you know, the, right. the user interface and the power of these things is shit. It's really, really bad. It if sounds you made- like, it sounds like the solution you're describing almost is like something that is an open source, uh, protocol for uh information sharing um or and it it would be like open source in the sense that you know linux is open source and yeah. then it would also be interoperable in the sense that email is interoperable yeah, right yeah, yeah. email I, I mean so so you can you can try that but it's not quite the same thing and and the problem with making a protocol like email is it will get captured so email has been captured like you used to be able to run your own email server and send emails to people. You can't do that anymore. They won't mm. get delivered, right? They will be sent into a black hole. Mm. Um, actually, J- Jameson Lopp from the Bitcoin community has a great uh, video, which I'll maybe send to you and you can post it to people on exactly how they killed the email protocol. But like email is not a, like email is still technically a protocol, but it's been totally captured. G- like, you know, 80% of users are using Gmail. So if Gmail right. black holes your emails, that's it. It's done, right? So these open protocols are, are a kind of nerd trap. And mm. there are people in the Bitcoin community who are making something called Moster, and Jack Dorsey has been sort of big in that, where they're like, no, no, we're going to solve this with an open protocol. And I think they're going to get wrecked in just the same way that email <laughs> got wrecked. Um, you know, it's going to get captured. It's just going to take a while, and they haven't realized it yet. Um, but I think instead of building a new protocol, you build a sort of meta protocol where, you know, it doesn't care what message type or standards Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all of these networks use to send the messages. It just like runs a virtual machine and just runs a browser with Twitter in it. And when you post something, it just pastes that into the browser and sends it, right? So you know, yes, they can sense, they can ban your account, right, from Twitter, but you could just go make a new account. And if if you get a lot of people who are using this sort of meta client, when somebody gets banned, the, the user interface can just automatically feed people what the new account is. And that mm. then becomes very difficult for these individual networks to, right. to really ban somebody, right? Because, because the whole point is when you ban someone, you make it very difficult and inconvenient for their followers to refollow them on the new account. And you can always make a new account, but you're going to lose 90% of your followers. You're going to have to build it up slowly, and then they can just ban you again, right? It's it's a, right. a sucker's game, right? This stuff sounds like I'm, you're actually kind of getting me excited, I feel like. And I know Tyler knows a lot of people where he lives in the urban community, and he has a lot of connections. And so yeah. in terms of, you know... I imagine Pluribus, hopefully, as it grows, will start working closely with some of these developers. Absolutely, um, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I'm already meeting with a couple of people once I uh, get back to Austin in a couple of days oh, um, cool. over the next couple of months, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other people are, you know, definitely something to, to collaborate with. And, of course, there's also the Ukbar people who are building uh, an Ethereum L2 called Ukbar. Um, and that might be very powerful as well because you can get crypto incentives to, to directly interface with this stuff. So for example, you know, if you got canceled and you were running one of these clients, a lot of people, one of these meta clients and a, a lot of other people were running a meta client, 
you could literally just pay them to refollow your new account. And it would be <laughs> so difficult for the, the social media networks to get around that. Right. Mm. Because how, you know, I mean, like, the more, di- like, they can look, if it's really easy for them to censor, they just have a database and they can just press the kill button on your profile. That's easy. But if you make a new account and then the meta client just sort of recommends this new account and says, hey, you know, X has been banned, this is their new account, and everyone follows that new account, that's not recorded in their database. So now it's hard. Um, and, you know, they can kind of like try and play cat and mouse against it. But, um, you know, as soon as they get into a, um, a like trench warfare against their own users, it's going to be quite easy for this meta client to just sort of like bypass them completely and be like, hey, guys, uh, Facebook keeps banning these people who you like. Uh, we're going to make a or, or Twitter keeps banning these people who, who you really like. We're going to make a shadow Twitter, uh, which is going to have all the content of the real Twitter, but it's also going to have all the people who they're banning. And it's going to have insight into how uh, the recommendation algorithm works and so on and so forth. And actually, you know, you, you can just like, you can just like scrape everything on Twitter, right? And then you can give people the freedom to not only follow people who've been banned by the people at Twitter, but also give people full freedom over their algorithm. And that's like really valuable, right? Have you, done a, have you done a write-up on this? I would be very interested to see how you fleshed out these ideas because you've obviously put a lot of thought into this. And it would be, I think a lot of people would be really interested, whether it's on your Substack or elsewhere, to see you flesh this out um, because it sounds very interesting and powerful. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have a write-up at the moment. Um, I'm still sort of thinking through it myself, but I think... That's probably the way you win this, right? Well, this is this is really good stuff. Um, so one thing I want to do, we've been we've been going for quite a while. Um, I, we kind of are trying to make this a standard bearer of of the podcast and in general of of the pluribus product. Um, kind of st- standing up to cancellation. Um, this is kind of heralding back to what uh, Tyler said earlier, which is. In order to beat the, you know, docility optimizer, you have to be willing to kind of eschew certain amounts of comfort and yeah. embrace comfortable truths. Um, and so, courage, I think, for us is a very central virtue. Um, there's a very good quote by C.S. Lewis: "Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality." And so I'm curious to hear from you. Um, you've been through various amounts of cancellations yourself, um, and then you're also just working on a lot of ideas to beat some of these very um, shadowy forces that are pulling apart civilization. Um, how do you feel like your courage has been developed, or how do you practice your courage in the face of a lot of um some really scary and kind of demoralizing occurrences. I mean, I think for me personally, it comes quite naturally because I'm just that kind of person. I'm the kind of person who will just repeatedly say no, um, <laughs> repeatedly say, no, you're wrong. I disagree. This is why you're wrong, which is why that's made me anxious. And I'm now like thinking, look, how can I, how can I preserve my platform for speech whilst also not really censoring myself and still saying things that a lot of people are going to get very angry about. Right. Um, and that's, that's what got me onto the idea of things like meta clients. Um, but just kind of like, you know, I mean, realistically, I'm probably not going to execute on that in the next, you know, 
three months. So in the next three months, I'm going to have to do something. Um, I'm going to have to set up something that, that like gives me some amount of protection. So, um, you know, I'm going to have to do something about it. Basically. Right. Yeah. Disagreeability certainly helps with uh, drawing lines and standing, standing yeah. up in the face of, face of some pretty evil things. Um, well, thank you so much, Rocco. Um, is there anywhere you would like to point people to to visit you or learn more about you or participate in your projects? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess my Twitter is a good place, um, at Rocco Mich. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, would be, that would be a good starting point. I'm also on Gab under the same username. And as I said earlier, I'm planning on branching out and setting that up on a few other uh, places. Um, but, but, you know, I don't, I haven't like, sort of really gone through with that and, and done it yet because I have like real life stuff that I need to take care of. Um but yeah, I mean I'll I'll probably be branching out to a few other networks. I would actually be interested, by the way, if people who do take an interest want to get in touch with me and say, hey, this is a place where um I like to discover content, um, you know, I'd be interested in hearing new ideas about that. Um, I'm also on Urbit. My planet is uh Tilda Baxel Lissel. Um, which uh, which is a, a good planet name. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite quite amazing. They let me get away with that one. Great. Any any last words? No, you guys pretty much covered it. Thanks so much for making the time, Rocco. Really appreciate it. And um, thanks for your help, guys. That was Rocco Mia. You can find him on Twitter at Rocco Mia. That is spelled R O K O M I J I C. Thanks for joining us today and make sure to sign up at becomepluribus.com and follow us on Twitter at becomepluribus to stay tuned to the latest updates.